0: All right, why don't you stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Exodus chapter 15 today. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. we will be on the screen behind me. There we go. Exodus 15:22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore they named it Mara, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, have you ever experienced an incredible victory in the Lord that you could only ascribe to Him? A mountaintop experience, a joy-filled, miraculous breakthrough, where you see God's hand all over circumstances that you just encountered. For instance, remember the first time you were you placed your faith in Jesus, right? This ex- exhilarating, awesome time, right? Or perhaps you watched God provi- pr- provide uh, for an acute financial need, and it only could be God that did that. Or you saw God miraculously remove cancer from your loved one's body. Or you got the dream job that you've been praying for for a decade. Or you found out that you were pregnant against all odds. Or your long-lost uh, relative placed their faith in Jesus. Or God restored a relationship that had been broken for years, and you're... You're overjoyed in the moment and you're praising God, and then all of a sudden, bam, you are hit with a discouragement that leaves you flat on your face wondering, What just happened? Where is God now? You ask. When Kelly and I headed over to Papua New Guinea 23 years ago, that was a long time ago, I know. Uh, it was a mountaintop experience, though. God had miraculously provided thousands of dollars worth of moving expenses, raised our monthly support to 90% of what we needed, and uh, all in just seven short months. And then he quickly uh, provided us our visas and a place to stay in the country, a healthy birth of our, our, our daughter, and then passports for all of us, including that newborn daughter, and, and the list goes on and on. And, and we arrived in the country of PNG just in August, ready to serve the Lord and full of energy, expecting God to do great things. And he just did all of that, and he was on a roll, and we were ready for it. And then two weeks later, September 11th hit. And in the states here, but but the news of that sent a shockwave all the way across to the other side of the globe over by us. And this followed. We heard this news, and then and then and then malaria. We got malaria for me, Kelly, our two-year-old, our newborn, and the malaria treatment. She her body rejected it, and then. And then the city that we were in broke out into uh, violence because it was election time and uh, thugs broke into the compound across from us and hurt the people that were there and then we had things stolen from our house and we lived in constant state of vigilance because all this was going on and we're having terrible nightmares and the whole family was constantly fighting sickness and infection and fatigue and discouragement and disappointment set in and we looked at those first five months as incredibly bitter, bitter months. But God... God turned that bitter time into a lesson in faith and patience and trust and obedience. And, and we grew stronger in our faith. God gave us resilience and he healed us. And coming out of those months, he, he led us to the place where we would ultimately spend uh, eight years of our life serving him. And, and a few, so a few months later, we're on a mountaintop uh, again, literally, because we moved into a 6,000-foot uh, village location and, and miracle after miracle and answer prayer after answer prayer came together to get us there. And then three days later... We're faced with more trials and more testing. And these discouragements were different than the first time around. It ended up being 40 days of rain and isolation and uncertainty. And we called it our 40 days in the wilderness, even though it was a jungle. But God, his grace carried us through and he strengthened our faith and he healed us again. And and God has kind of orchestrated life like that. We experienced great victories. Like Israel on the seashore, we sing, hooray, we're saved. Look at the evidence of God's miraculous, miraculous hand, Right? And then a few days later, we get the first setback, the first challenge that we cannot solve on our own, the first uh, need that we cannot supply, the first job loss that we can't explain, the first death that's unexpected, the first relationship we can't patch up, the first sickness that we can't find the remedy for, the first misunderstanding that we can't clear up, the first uh, sinful habit that we can't kick, or, and then we're deeply disappointed with God, right? And we grumble. The miracles that God just performed a few days earlier seem to be all but forgotten. And where is He now? And then it happens again, sometimes and again, not just the first time, the second time, third time, and kind of like waves in an ocean, right? And they hit us, and we go, "Where is God? Where is God?" See, God miraculously saved the children of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt with signs and wonders and all those plagues and everything. And then he led them through the midst of the sea. And you think about that. He's never done that before. And he's never going to do it again. It was super dramatic. And he did the impossible for them. They came through the sea and they were on the mountaintop and they were praising God and singing and dancing and worshiping. We looked at it last week and they were like, look at the evidence of God's reckless hand and their enemies are all dead on the seashore, Right? He saved us. He blew with his nostrils. The waters of the sea parted. He stretched out his hand and, he, and the waves came crashing down on our enemies. And God has done so much for them. They're excited and ready to go. And three days later, no water. And we read the story and we're like, come on, guys. Why, why would you doubt God only three days later? That's, not because, that's because we're not putting ourselves into that story, right? They had no water, they had nothing to drink, they were thirsty. They were getting weak, they were getting dehydrated, and fatigued. It has been three days, right? They could not ignore their kids crying. When was the last time we went a day without water? Just talking about it makes me thirsty. Right? We don't go very long at all. They were thirsty, and they were bitter. Right? Why couldn't God simply speak and give us water right now? What about sending some rain so we could collect it? God just parted an ocean or whatever, and now we don't have water here, right? Why do we have to be thirsty? What's the point of us being here? Why do we have to endure this discomfort? Is God going to do something to help us? Where is God now? And this suffering reminds me of what it was like to be in Egypt because I feel like I'm going to die, right? And it took only three days for reality to ascend in. Three days later, God tested their faith. But the testing was a revelation of their need for God's grace and mercy. And this episode shows us how human disappointment and bitterness is met by God's grace and his, mercy and his healing. So let's look at that first point, disappointment and bitterness. Go back to chapter 15, verse 22. So Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea where they just had that incredible mountaintop experience and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. The wilderness of Shur is located in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. It's hot, it's dry, it's sunny, it's desert, it's rocky, right? And three days into the desert, the Israelites had no water. As I said, they were thirsty. The panic of not having water is incredibly difficult to ignore. <laughs> you can't just shove it out of your mind and just keep going, right? We, as humans, we need water to live, good, drinkable water. Humans need clean water to stay healthy, and we need clean water to sustain life, right? And, and what had to have been so disheartening and discouraging and disappointing is that the Israelites actually came to water. They could see it. They could feel it. They could touch it, but they couldn't drink it. So they touch it, they take a cup, you know, they put it in their mouth and, but they had to spit it out because it was bitter. They couldn't drink it. So close, yet so far. The disappointment had to have been a bit overwhelming. And we've all experienced some sort of disappointment in life. As small as a thing as our beloved Packers losing a Packer game to as large of a thing as receiving news of a terminal illness, right? We've all had disappointment in our life. Disappointment is hard to accept. It's just not how things were supposed to turn out. Have you ever said, I did everything right, but somehow it didn't, it didn't turn out like it was supposed to. Or how about, I thought I was following the Lord's direction. I was obeying his word. I, I didn't sin. I was praying about this. And the outcome was anything but pleasant, bitter. Can you imagine, hey, we followed the cloud and it led us here. God led us to this place without drinkable water. This isn't supposed to happen. Things are not supposed to turn out this way. The water source was named Mara, and they called the water source bitterness. That's what Mara means. Not only because the water was bitter, but because it brought up the, the memories of the bitterness of Egypt. Mara was a bitter place. Life in Egypt was bitter. Exodus chapter 1, verse 13 describes it. So it says, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. So, Their lives were filled with stress and it was hard, backbreaking work with misery and continued year after year after year. and, And then their memories were bitter. God ordered the Passover meal, this wonderful Passover meal, it was to contain elements that would remind the Israelites of the condition in which they lived in Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 8 they were to eat the flesh of that Passover lamb at night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then the desert water was bitter. They couldn't drink the water because it was undrinkable, right? What, what is bitterness like? Well, when we think of bitter things, we think of vinegar and, and green tea and coffee, kale, Brussels sprouts, stuff like that. Um, these things uh, are not sweet to the taste. They're, they're bitter, right? And we add stuff, sweetener or salt or whatever, to make it palatable, right, so that we enjoy them better. Bitterness in the Bible is likened to something very unpleasant, chafing, heaviness, pain, and a, a perfect example would be from the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth's mother-in-law was a Jew who had moved uh, to a foreign country to flee a famine and with her husband, and after some time, her husband passed away, and she found herself a widow in a foreign land. And if that wasn't enough, her two sons, whom she loved, both passed away as well. And she's left alone with two daughters-in-law from a different country, and they're living in a place that is not her home. And as Naomi, in her grief and in her pain, she, she, says, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitterness. And she says, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. So the idea that, is that bitterness is the opposite of pleasant, the, the opposite of sweet. Bitterness is undesirable. And, and when the Lord changed the water of Mara, what did it say that it became? It became sweet. Interesting. So bitterness of soul is a predictable outcome to disappointment, right? Right? Bitterness of soul is an understandable outcome to harshness and and suffering and things like that, but bitterness is not a good thing in the water or in the soul. When reminded of the bitterness of Egypt and faced with the disappointment of no water and still remaining thirsty, the Israelites, they come at Moses, right? When they grumble against him, it says, as if it was his fault. And I can just hear the statements, right? Surely Moses didn't think enough ahead. How could he have made such a bonehead decision? He was obviously not listening to the Lord or we wouldn't be in this predicament. Moses has wronged us. Moses, you're not capable of leading us anymore. Look where you brought us. What are we supposed to drink? Remember, the whole nation had been following God's Shekinah glory in a cloud by day and fire by night. So this wasn't Moses' fault at all. But they were thirsty and tired and disappointed, so they turned on Moses. And how disappointed it must have been for Moses. What could he do about it, right? He was following God just like they were. And notice that they didn't take their complaint to God which I believe revealed what was really a deeper issue, the fact that they were disappointed with God. And they were bitter at him, questioning God's motives and his abilities, and they followed God's lead, and it led them to bitter water. So they were grumbling because God didn't act as they expected him to. And so they grumbled and complained and they murmured. And the word for complain in this context is stronger than just a complaint or a grumbling or an unhappy attitude like we think of it. It's, it's used most exclusively in the wilderness wandering stories to describe the rebellion of the Israelites against God. And this murmuring or grumbling or whatever you want to call it is like a vote of no confidence, right? God did not measure up to our standards and so we can't trust him. God is incapable of knowing our basic needs like water and so God must not really love us. God is not capable of leading us anymore. Tell us, Moses, what are we supposed to do now? Think about that situation for a minute and put yourself in their shoes. Have you ever done anything like that? You followed God's plan, you did what was right, and then God greatly disappointed you. Sometimes I find, uh, something I find sad in life is that often when God disappoints us, we will turn on someone else and blame them for it, whether that's a spouse or a boss or a pastor or a mentor or a leader or whatever, when our real beef is with God. Now what did Moses do? Moses turned to the only one who could help. Moses cried out to the Lord. He, he most likely had the same question for God that those people did, right? Like, but at least he took that question to the right place. And I can just imagine the humanness of Moses coming out as he asked the same question of God. Lord, what are, what are we going to drink? We are at our wit's end here. It hurts. We're thirsty. We're parched. It doesn't feel good. People are crying. They're coming at me. Are you actually going to give us something or Not? Man, I want you to look at the Lord's response. The Lord God did not respond with judgment or condemnation or punishment or anything like that. No, the Lord answered with grace and with healing. Let's look at the second part of that passage, verse 25. So they told Moses to pick up a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule... And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the loving kindness and grace of God on display. As we learned a few weeks ago, God saved the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they were free from Pharaoh, but they were not free to go their own way. They were free to follow God's way, we said that. And why? Because God's way is the way of life. And what does God say the way of life looks like? What is the way characterized by? The way is characterized by faith. And that is what God tested right here. He tested their faith in him. Would they trust him even when there seemed to be no way for God? or for anyone else to solve the situation. It's kind of like being on the shores of the Red Sea again with Pharaoh's army charging down upon them, but this was a different type of danger, right? This, this, was, hung, uh, this was thirst. And, and what this means is that God allowed them to be thirsty. God lovingly brought them to this point of parched throats and dry and cracking lips and fatigue on purpose. God had them suffer on purpose. And the question that everyone asks, at least I ask when I come to this point in the passage, if, if we're truly honest with ourselves, is how could a loving God do that, right? How is, it, how is allowing people to suffer loving? How is leading someone to discomfort a loving app? How is God? Can, how can God consider himself loving and yet cause pain and thirst? Really good questions. The Bible wrestles with those. And, but what did God do in response to Moses' cry to him? Grace. God heard his cry. God saw his predicament. God knew what needed to happen, and God acted. And he was their salvation again. Think back to chapter 2 in Exodus. What what did God do in response to Israel's cry to him as they cried out from slavery? It was grace. God heard their cry. God saw their predicament. God knew what needed to happen, and God acted. He was their salvation, and that's our God. He's a gracious God. And the Lord pointed out a log or a branch or a tree, and he told Moses to throw it into the water. And God used something in nature to correct something that was out of order in nature, right? Did the tree actually have cleansing properties? We don't really know. It could be. Is it any less miraculous if God created a tree that could take away the bitterness of water? Or if God just had Moses choose a random log or whatever and throw it in water so he could work a miracle that way to change it from being bitter? They're both miraculous either way. It was a gracious act of God. That's what it was. So Moses obeyed, he threw the log in the water. The water was made sweet, and all the people were able to drink to the full. Drink to the full. Their thirst was quenched. They were no longer disappointed. God had graciously provided. He hadn't failed them. What an amazing, gracious God. What an incredibly providential God. What a loving God. A loving God who tests us to see if we trust him or not. And that was a tough test. From verse 25, the test included the suffering that they endured, but it also had another element to it as we get into the second half of verse 25. And the question is, how is faith displayed? How is faith displayed? How, how is faith revealed? How does God know if we have faith? How do I know whether or not I have faith that God's going to do what he says he's going to do? How do I prove, how do we prove that we've passed the test, right? God tested them, right? Let's look at how God described what their faith in him would look like. God established a way for the Israelites to prove that they trusted him. God made something for them. He created a statute and a rule, it says. He gave them a boundary and a measure. Like in the beginning, when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and it was so that they would flourish and grow and be fruitful and multiply, right? And and God set a boundary and he gave them a rule or a measure. He said, eat from every tree that's out there except for the one. Don't eat from that tree right there. And they had to trust him. And here in the desert, God gave them a boundary and a rule so that they would flourish and grow and be fruitful. He said, listen to and obey everything I tell you to do. Now, boundaries and rules to many of us sound like restrictions and hindrances from things that we want or we think are good for us. But the more you read scripture, the more you grow to realize that boundaries and rules are a gift of God's grace from God because the boundary and the rule is actually what is good for us because receiving his gifts of grace, I would bring us close to him. What God did here was He gave them ground rules which would act as evidence of their trust. Jesus actually put it this way: He said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? Ground rules. I think of them like this: ground rules for a journey. This is what this is. I've been on my fair share of overnight backpacking trips, both here in the States, over in Papua New Guinea. And for every backpacking excursion I've been on, there's always one person who's in charge. He's the guide, he's the one who makes the decisions. The one who establishes the guidelines for the adventure, right? The one who determines where we will go and the route that we will take to get there. If something goes wrong or someone is injured, he is the point person. The guide sets the pace, tells us where the trails are that we're going to take, where we sleep and when we sleep and what we drink from and and, uh, where to cross the rivers and what we could and could not take with us. A few years ago, I went on a four-day backpacking trip in the wilderness of the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana. Really rugged place. Our guide told us what time we were going to wake up in the morning, what rations each of us were going to take so that we had enough food for everyone for the entire trip. He told some of us to carry medical equipment, others to carry a firearm, one to carry bear-proof container, and he determined the schedule and the route we were going to take, and, he, and we trusted him. We listened to him. We followed his guidelines, and everything went well. Why? Because he knew what he was doing and where he was going. We did not. It turned out to be a beautiful time in the wilderness alone together with God because we trusted our guide and we followed his guidelines. And right here at the beginning of their journey into the wilderness, dangerous place, God as their guide was giving the children of Israel a gracious opportunity to trust him by following the ground rules for that journey through the desert. They were to trust that God's ways were the ways of life. They were to listen to what God said and do only what was right in his eyes because his ways were the ways of protection. And they were to keep his directions and follow his commands and listen to his rules so they could survive in this very difficult place. If the Israelites were faithful to follow the Lord, which really wasn't too much to ask if you think about it. I mean, when I went into those uncharted territories, uh, you know, in the dangerous rainforest, I was going to places I hadn't been, I didn 't know how to survive. I was a little bit afraid of going to those places, right? And so I was more than willing to listen to my guide without question, because he knew what he was doing. God was infinitely wiser. He is more dependable guide in the wilderness. He created the wilderness. He knew what to do. It only makes sense to listen to him without question. If the Israelites were faithful to listen to God, then God said that they would not get injured along the way. God would heal them. God wasn't laying down law. God was providing the pathway of grace. Pathway of grace. Because God said to them, if you trust me and you follow me, I promise I will guide you. I will watch over you. I'll protect you from diseases. I will remove the bitterness from your life. And I will do this because I am the Lord, your healer. He is Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Besides its basic meaning of to heal, the word Rapha carries the additional meaning of to restore or to mend. So, Jehovah Rapha can also mean the Lord who restores or the Lord who fixes broken things. It's an incredibly encouraging name of God. Latch on to it. It's an extraordinary, strengthening name of God. It's one that we need. I love this name of God. Why? Because the majority of us realize that we are, if we're honest with ourselves, we're broken, not just physically. Spiritually. We are all broken in body and in spirit. And You know, the prophet Jeremiah, big book about him, right? But he experienced incredible discouragement and difficulty in his life. And all he did was proclaim the word of the Lord and he received nothing but opposition and suffering, thrown into wells, all this stuff. And In his brokenness and desperation, he prayed to God to save him. And I want you to listen to how his prayer started. Jeremiah 17, 14, he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved, for you, you, Lord, are my praise. And Jeremiah, from the discouragement of his spirit and the anguish of his heart, he cried out to the only one who could heal, Jehovah Rapha. I want you to listen to the following psalms and listen for what kinds of things the Lord heals. Psalm 147 Verse 1 to 3. Psalm 147, 1 to 3 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, like we did this morning, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, that all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. God is so good, right? Who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Psalm chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, but be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing in a difficult spot. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. Psalm 30, 1-3. O Lord, my God, I cried you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So the healing of the Lord is internal. That's how it's described in Scripture. Jehovah Rapha heals the brokenhearted. He heals the discouraged. He heals those who are brought down to the pit of despair. He heals those who are diseased in body and spirit. He heals those whose very bones are racked with trouble. God is a healing God. Jesus is our great healer. The prophet Isaiah captured the irony of this truth when he said, by his wounds, we have been healed. By his wounds, the wounds of Jesus, God incarnate, by his wounds received upon the cross, we are healed. Since when do wounds heal anything? But Jehovah Rapha takes his own wounds and heals us through them. That's a miracle. And I want you to hold those thoughts about the gracious and lavish healing of Jehovah Rapha because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes Because here is the grace of God going above and beyond, not just to heal, but above and beyond. In verse 27, they came to Elam. And the point of this verse is this. Just as God had led them to bitterness, God most assuredly led them to a place of refreshment and sweetness. He led them beside still waters. He brought them to a life-sustaining, life-giving oasis in the middle of the desert. God provided, God proved that he was leading them in both the good and the bad. And get this, God had a purpose for both. He proved it right here. His people just needed to trust him even when the way seemed long and they were at the end of their ropes. God can and will provide in his time. He's faithful. And Here's the big takeaway I want you to notice. God's deliverance was provided to them not by removing them from the wilderness or from the desert, but in the desert. Psalm 23, verse 5 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So God often takes us into the wilderness and pushes us to the very limits to see if we will trust him. And then his deliverance is not in taking us out of the predicament, but by providing the grace in the heart of it. Can you imagine? And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Right? You prepare, prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You see, God responded to them in the wilderness and in the midst of the grumbling and complaining and their lack of faith and their doubt and their disappointment, their bitterness, their failure. God responded with grace and with mercy. So good. God's response to all of the mess was grace and mercy and healing. What a good God. The movement from death to life occurs within the very experience of what seems as God-forsakenness. So the road from bondage, death, sin, to freedom, life, and holiness occurs within the experience of suffering and when it seems like God isn't even there. God's gift of grace was not to remove them from the desert, but to provide the way of grace and healing to them as they traveled through the difficult, hot, dangerous desert as he was their guide. It's just, as they, just like they had traveled through the Red Sea. Psalm 77, 19 sums it up wonderfully. I love it. Your way was through the sea. Sea is a pre- pretty difficult place, right? Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, and yet your footprints were unseen. His way was through even though his footprints are unseen. And many of us look at God, his laws, his decrees, his grace, his love, his mercy, his justice, and we think that if we follow what he says, that everything is just going to turn out how we think it should turn out, just like how we think it should. And I'm sure the Israelites thought that if they followed God's pillar of fire through the desert, that they would not go thirsty. Logical conclusion? Wrong. They were confronted with bitterness and thirst. In fact, in the weeks to come, we're going to find out that the Israelites, still following God's pillar of fire and his commands were confronted with hunger and thirst again. I want you to think a minute about the man Job. Hopefully you've read the book of Job, but you've heard the story. The devil at the beginning, he comes to God with a little wager, right, going on. If the devil takes away everything from Job, that Job's going to turn from God and he's going to curse him. And God says, no, he won't. And they're back and forth, right? And God goes on to describe Job as a righteous man, devout man, blameless, and Upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. He's the most perfect example of a godly man you can find, right? And the assumption is in the book at the beginning is that because of his spirituality, certainly Job's life would be blessed and he would be spared suffering and tragedy. But no, he lost everything. And it wasn't because he sinned, as his friends tried to point out. He was confronted with the bitterness of Mara. And the book Uh, Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis, Aslan the Lion, comes to Lucy, and he he says, things never happen the same way twice. So true in life. right? God never does the same thing twice. And why? Because God is infinitely creative, number one. But number two, God wants us to trust him. If things were predictable, we wouldn't need to trust him. We're smart. We learn patterns. Figure it out. Do it on our own. Turns out that the the fact that things never go the same way twice is a grace of God. For it makes us dependent upon Him, not us. It forces us to trust Him. The question is, will we? So perhaps you're here this morning, you are find yourself wounded or broken, and you think that God has abandoned you, and you're like you're out in a desert with no water, and God just hasn't provided fresh water for your soul. God's word for you today is simply this. Trust in Jehovah Rapha. He is your healer. In fact, Jesus is the healing, life-giving water that we all need in the desert. Jesus said it to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water in the well, right, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. When you are spiritually thirsty, go to Jesus. Pour out your heart to him. Tell him what you're feeling and and he is the healing water of eternal life. We drink of him when we trust him. Are any of you here today with a broken heart, still grieving a death or carrying a deep sadness? Listen to the kindness of our Father. Jehovah Rapha heals those who are brokenhearted. Jesus said, Come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. Go to Jesus with your broken heart. Share it with Him. Trust Him to take it and to heal it. Are any of you here with a sickness of soul? You're here today struggling to forgive an offense or wrapped up in a sin or maybe you were sinned against and you were wounded or mistreated. Jehovah Rapha heals the soul through forgiveness. Trust Him that He will do it. Paul said in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Trust that his way is the way of grace. Are you here today discouraged or, <clears throat> and as the Israelites, bitter in your soul because of a great disappointment with God or because of a great wound or because of a circumstance that's pushed you to the very limits? Jehovah Rapha heals those who have been beaten down and he restores to life those who have gone down to the pit. The apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 5 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you from the pit, right? Casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He heals you. Take your discouragement to him, take your disappointment to him, and trust that he will heal. Go to Jesus confess, admit where you're at. You're discouraged, broken-hearted, disappointed, bitter, wounded, stressed out, whatever, and, and trust that he will forgive and that he will heal and he will strengthen, he will refresh. Simply pray like Jeremiah the prophet prayed. From this pit of despair, he said, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. You are my praise. You are all I need, right? Kyle and I were sitting with a longtime friend and pastor the other day, and He said to us, the highest form of worship is trust. And that's what God was teaching the Israelites at the waters of Marah, to trust him in the bitterness of Marah, to trust that he would adequately provide for and fully heal them, even in that spot. And that is what God is continually teaching us as we journey through this desert life of faith, right? To trust him in the bitter and difficult, stressful places of life, believing that Jesus is our healer, The Lord is your healer. He will provide for you and he will heal you. As Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. God wants us to trust Jesus in all circumstances because that is the highest form of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story here, this true story found in your word. From a mountaintop to a valley where they had no idea what was going to happen. God, you tested their faith to see if they would trust you. Lord, oftentimes we get to that place in life where we just don't know the way out. We don't know how it can get better. <clears throat> Help us, Lord God, to trust you and to allow you to heal us. Lord, take away the bitterness, take away the pain and to take away all of that in our soul and to make us new, healed strong, full of joy and strength again. And so, God, you are the place that we go. You're the only one who can do it. You are our healer. And thank you that you are faithful and that you are able to do above and beyond what we could ask or think. So, God, we we look to you. I pray that as we go into this week, as we confront difficult circumstances and as we may confront difficult people and difficult places, God, would you remind us that you are the healer and that we turn all of that over to you. So God, we we rest in you, we trust in you, and we thank you that you're a good, gracious God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.